As you know, we've been talking uh, about the heart of God and we've been systematically going through every single attribute in 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, so we've been laboring through this, but I feel that every single week we're we're uncovering new things that are lies within our belief system. And the very point of it is that wherever our perception and understanding of love is distorted, we can be certain that our view of God will also be distorted in in the same exact way. And John, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. And so every attribute of love, we can actually personify that in the Father. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. And tonight is God is not self-seeking because we can substitute God in every single one of those areas. Here's the reality of life is that we live in such a jacked up, broken world. Somebody say amen out there. Thank you. There's not a single person that I don't believe in this room that has gone through life without the pains of having love completely ruin their life. I think every single person in this room has had an encounter with love, whether it's a mother, a father, a man, a woman, somebody who has so hurt and harmed them to the core. They come to a place of desperation. They come to a place of where they say to themselves, I don't need love anymore. This thing, that this, this relationship with the father, I don't need that anymore. This relationship with a boy or girl, I don't need that anymore. And what happens is that we as humans, we move into react and protect mode and we protect ourselves. And the mentality becomes about self-protection. The focus becomes suddenly about our needs being met And the focus becomes about not making the same mistakes twice. Your heart gets hurt. You're like, I'm not going to forget that one. The focus becomes paranoia about being hurt again. The focus becomes about getting back and getting even. In order to be satisfied with love, we have to arrange the details going forward in order that they meet our needs, that love kind of works out in our favor. And we ourselves become experts in this thing called self-seeking love. And it's in these times, in these moments, when we encounter traumatic experiences, relationships, and loves, it's the times that we adopt the lies that God is a self-seeking God. And it kind of seems obvious, like when I think about it, like religion, it's kind of like the essence of a self-seeking being, asking all these people to worship him. You know, whatever religion is, I mean, it seems like that, that shouldn't be that big of a deal. But we have, have, have adopted the self-seeking nature about faith in God in all sorts of places. I mean, we look at it, how we find fellowship in churches, right? We'll try a church, we'll try a group, a, a small group, a ministry, and, and we're always looking for something that feeds us. And the moment we don't feel fed, we split, we're out. And we're not even sure if we, like, we're going to attend service if there's not something in it for you, like, come on, like admit it, you're like, Oh, that speaker's coming. Yeah, I think I got laundry to do that day. You know, you're like, you ever do that? Well, we're gauging, <laughs> see, I'm not asking for hands to be raised, but thank you. <laughs> but we try to, to gauge what we receive from it. You try a new church and, and all your feedback comes about how nice people treated you or how not nice they treated you. It all becomes about us. Here's the fascinating thing about the Bible is the Bible rarely, if ever, uses love when describing you receiving it. In almost every instance that the Bible has in talking about love, it's actually about you giving it. 
The experience of love is not when you receive it, but the essence and the experience of love that you and I are destined to receive is actually about us giving it. Having someone to love you is not the equivalent of you living in love because that's what we want. Everybody wants someone to love them. And that's, our, that's what we desire, but we completely miss the point of the Bible. And when it describes love is that the only way to live in love is to be the lover. And you will never live in love as long as you expect to be the receiver. I have people, really close people, and they so desperately want to be in love, but all they can think about is that they are the receiver. They're like, I'm not receiving love. And their life becomes this panic, it becomes this paranoia. And what I found is that true fulfillment and joy really comes through loving people, not finding someone to love you. And self-seeking is to be selfish, right? It's to be purely self-interested and self-centered. But if you think about it, self-interested, self-seeking, selfishness, selfish mentality is the root of every problem and struggle in our lives. I can't think of a single evil in the world that is not rooted in someone seeking their own interests. You can find death. You can find every sin. Every sin you can find somebody who's seeking themselves. The reason for divorce, self-seeking. I just didn't have my needs met anymore. I didn't find where that was in the covenants, you know, in the, the recitals. I mean, I, I attended weddings where it's like, as both as we shall love, you know, we'll stay married. And it, like the marriage lasted for, you know, three years. It's like, well, I didn't see that one coming. You know, with those big, strong commitments there. But you also like suicide too. We think that suicide is actually self-hatred. Suicide is not self-hatred. Suicide is actually the most selfish act that some person can do. Because if they really hated themselves, they would actually continue living life as their self-imposed punishment for how miserable they are. But at a selfish root, when someone is talking about suicide, what they really want to do is they really want everybody to feel bad for them. It's all about them. I had someone who recently uh, was talking and, and they talked about committing suicide. I was like, holy cow. Like, I, whatever's broken in your heart, I can't fix. But I can tell you that if you want people to love you, the thing that you are trying to accomplish by threatening suicide is doing the exact opposite. What you're doing is you're, you're trying to draw people in into observance of yourself. It's a very selfish thing. It's like you're, you're going you're gonna to accomplish the exact opposite of what your words are saying that you want. You want relationship. You want life. Taking your life isn't going to accomplish that. But over the years in, in Christianity, like we have you know, people who add on to the, the heart of God. We, we add on to our own theology. And, and over the time, that I think we have made God to be the ultimate self-seeker in the universe. We rationalize in it, right? Because it's like, well, he's God. I mean, he could be self-seeking. Like, we kind of give God the, like the pass card, you know? It's like, he gets the, the get out of jail free card from whatever thing. You know, people will rationalize why God kills people. And it's like, well, he's God. I don't think that's right theology, you know? I don't think that we can personify God in these, these terms. And nobody, you know, nobody likes a selfish person. We all know selfish people. We're like, out of the list of 40 people we can hang out with, they're going to be like on the lower rung there. And nobody likes a selfish God. And my goal tonight is actually to reveal ways in which we are taking this self-seeking love mentality that many of us have experienced, have been on the, the hurtful end of, and many ways in which we have allowed religion to paint a picture of a self-seeking God that completely cuts off intimacy. Are you guys ready? 
buckle up, because I'm telling you that this is going to be one of the nights where I might get a few emails. <laughs> but the good news is that the revelation has the power to set you free. Amen? The first thing, God is not self-seeking because God does not demand his own way. God does not demand his own way. A self-seeking person always wants things done their way. A self-seeking person removes themselves from things they don't like. A self-seeking person will manipulate circumstances to have things done their particular way. A self-seeking person will tell you, I wouldn't do it that way. A self-seeking person will gloat and brag about how their way is right. And one of the most basic principles that we have to understand when it comes to the heart of God is that he has given us choice. If you missed the message where we talked about our, the will of God, our choice, I encourage you to go back and check it out. But having choice is one of the most foundational things that make us in the image of God. God values, respects your choices. He wants eagerly to see what choice we will make and then he wants to be with us all the way through regardless of whether it's a good choice or bad choice. Our choices belong to us and God has no desire to ever take that away from us. But Christians, they're terrified. Christians are, are terrified all the time about picking the God choice. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like they, they stress and they're like, what is it the one choice that God wants? And they describe it as if God has one option of this entire menu of options and all other options are not God's choice. And this is why so many Christians make no choice at all. Sometimes I get frustrated not to stereotype Christians, but sometimes they're like the least active people I know. They are the most paralyzed, indecisive people I can even describe. Often I think it's rooted out of a desire to follow God and to hear God, but sometimes the paranoia of making the wrong God choice allows them to make no choice at all. No choice at all is still a choice. Understand that if God wanted you always to go with one perfect choice, then you don't really have choice at all. It completely contradicts itself. And one of the very first exchanges with Adam, if you go to Genesis chapter 2, and you look at what is the, I wonder, like, what was the first thing that God did with Adam? This is before Eve. God created the animals, and he did something very specific. He, he took Adam over, and he's like, let's name these puppies. And he gave Adam the choice to name all the animals. And whatever Adam picked, that was the name. Adam knew that the only wrong choice was to make no choice at all. And obviously when it comes to sin, that's a bad choice, right? And we're not talking about sin, but we're talking about things like, you know, should I stay at my job? Should I buy a car? What outfit should I wear in the morning? Will I take a vacation? I mean, there are millions and millions of choices that God actually is saying, I've given you free reign. Things that range from the, the minute in those areas, but also things of great power, things of great witness of our life. Everyone's memorized this single verse on this. It's very, very easy. It should be one of those things, whenever you consider, what does God want me to do in my life? Remember this verse, it's Isaiah 118. It says, come now, let us reason together. You probably never heard that verse in the Bible. Come now, let us reason together. Are you guys reading this that God is like beckoning us to actually engage with him about reasonable matters? We should all be like kicking our heels and leaping for joy. 
I'm somebody who was always used to having my own way. I, I'm not afraid to admit it. I remember one particular embarrassing incident. Uh, I was a, the youngest of three kids and we'd go pick out Christmas trees. And when I'm like, have my mind focused on something like I have it the exact way I want it, you know? And for whatever reason, I think I'm like four. I might've been older, but I don't want to embarrass myself too much. But we were picking out a Christmas tree and the tree that we picked out didn't have a pointy top. It wasn't my year to pick it. It was like, weren't like Brent's or my brother's, you know, year to pick it. And like the tree was like rounded on top. And I like, I had like the picture of like, you know, the perfect cartoon tree with like the big star that like, I could never have anything but a star at the top of a Christmas tree. I just like, it's not perfect. And, and I would like throw these tantrums over a pointy Christmas tree. It's crazy. And I ruined like, and I, I asked my mom this week, uh, do you have that picture? Cause she actually took a picture of me sitting like on a stump, like totally sour. And I totally wanted my way. Maybe it's the reason I'm an entrepreneur is like, I get my own way like almost all the time. <laughs> I actually don't hear the words no too often in my job, which is kind of problematic if you know me a little bit more. But, um, but we must know that when it comes to God, God is not like that. God's not the pointy tree God. He's not going to like throw a temper tantrum if he doesn't get his way. One of the biggest things that we can learn about reading scripture correctly is to know that just because it's God's will doesn't mean it comes to pass. Just because it's God's will doesn't mean it comes to pass. Again, if you want more on this exact topic, check out several weeks ago. But just two examples real quick. Matthew 18, 14, it says, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones would perish. Translation, it's God's will that all people are saved. Are all people saved? No. It says plainly it's God's will that all people are saved. Are all people saved? No, we know that people are dying every day without Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. Did anybody's day sound like that today? <laughs> then you're outside of God's will. Bummer, right? But that's, that's the, the pattern that we need to break because when we have this mentality of this one way or my, the high, or my way or the highway or one size, one option, one pick of the menu, we completely go into a realm of distortion of God's heart. And millions of these decisions he leaves up to us. It's amazing how uh, how many Christians think that God takes control of them or wants God to intervene? I'm sorry to tell you, but God probably will not get you out of bed to take you to your job. <laughs> I'm sorry, but God probably will not control your alcohol consumption so you don't get drunk. He's kind of like, well, you got a mouth. You know, it's kind of, you got a hand. If you can keep those two away, you know, you'll be in good territory. God will not control your hands when you're making out. No one feel awkward. God will not control your tongue when you are in a heated argument. You are created in his image and part of that image is self-control. God controlling you is not a fruit of the spirit. But people ask for prayer as if God is gonna control them. And it's, it's, it's amazing how people in their requests for prayer will completely remove themselves from any involvement to what they're even praying for. One, one 
kind of funny example. I was overhearing, I'm not trying to eavesdrop on other people's prayers, but um, <laughs> we were in a setting and this girl came for prayer and, and she wanted to uh, lose weight. She wanted to change her eating habits. And she's like, I want God to help me lose weight. And the gal, bless her heart, she was so hilarious. Like, I'm like laughing inside because I'm hearing her pray. She's like, God, would you let her know that she does not have to put food to her mouth, you know? <laughs> and it was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, right. Like, there's, there's parts of our life that, that God is willing to partner with us. But if you are, are waiting until you have the McDonald's takeout bag in your car driving with the quarter pounder and ask, God, don't let me gain any weight. You know, he's kind of like, give me some more skin here, right? God does not control us. And he also does something so wonderful in our life is that he waits for our approval before doing work on our heart. Some people just want to be zapped by God. They, they are so eager, like, I need stuff to change now, and, and like, I, I just, I need God to do something. And, and they ask that God would completely take control. And, and God is so merciful and so gracious that I firmly believe that he will never do anything in your heart that you first don't agree with. People ask for prayer to have victory over sin, but in their hearts, I think sometimes we don't believe that we're going to have victory. Salvation, the very essence of salvation actually is fundamental that your heart is in agreement with what is possible. Romans 10.10 says this, that it is within your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. A heart agreement is what permits the move of God in your life. So the next time you ask for prayer, you might want to ask yourself, am I in agreement with what I'm asking God to do? Do I really believe in my heart that God is capable, is willing, and will do this? That's something I've been trying to incorporate into to my relationships is like we can pray all day long, but if you yourself are not in agreement, I don't think we can expect much movement. Amen? And even radically different is that God has subjected himself to your control. Not only is God not controlling, but he has subjected himself to your control by placing his spirit in you all the time. That means in your darkest, deepest failure, he's there. You take him everywhere with you. He said, I am in you. The living presence of God is in you. You are his temple, and wherever you go, he goes. There's not a single moment in your most humiliating second of your life that he's not there with you. And so he gives us the grace to know that no matter what we endure, he's always there. Number two, God is not self-seeking because God's love is not conditional on your love. Someone who's self-seeking is only in relationships that benefit them. Someone who's self-seeking places conditions on relationships with others. Self-seeking people will not risk themselves unless there's a guaranteed benefit and a positive outcome for them. God is not self-seeking by setting conditions on his love based on yours. It's just human nature, right, to have this kind of response of like, I give something, I get something back. And people mistakenly believe that the moment you accept Jesus, God begins to extend his love and work in your life. I used to believe, I used to believe like, I was completely absent from God until I got saved and, and then I got his love. And, but we, we miss the scriptures on this because John 3.16, like the most overquoted verse in the Bible, it's like on football players, you know, whatever that stuff is, you know. It's like God so loved the 
world, you know? It's like before the foundations, before you even were thought of. Romans 5.8, it says, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. It's like Jesus has been thinking about you for a whole lot longer than you've been thinking about him. And in reality, we understand that God has been working in your life since the foundations of the universe. He's been anticipating, planning, plotting, trying to reveal himself. He doesn't wait for you to extend his love to you. It's never dependent upon reciprocation. I heard the most hilarious uh, definition of stalking this week. (laughs) It's great. Stalking is two people going on a romantic walk together, but only one person knows about it. (laughs) Isn't that great? (laughs) Stalking is two people going on a romantic walk together, but only one person knows about it. If you can take one truth away from this tonight, it's tied to this, is that God is in relationship with every human being on the planet, but just not every person realizes it. God is in relationship with every single person on earth, but just not everybody realizes it yet. It's interesting because I've even been in this context as a father. Again, being a father is like the most revolutionary thing for my faith. It's crazy because I get to love this thing. I get to think about this thing years before it can recognize who I am put in context that they can even love me back. And I get to spend years loving something that has no return, has no real benefit for me. In fact, it's actually, children are tough. (laughs) Amen. By myself. (laughs) But I always used to have an issue with like, how on earth are these like unsaved people that have like money and like stature and good looks and you know, like how, how is it that there are these amazing people that don't know Jesus? How is it they were given such natural ability and didn't know Jesus? And we come to the realization that when we think that God is self-seeking, we link our salvation to good gifts. When in reality, God says, I'm going to give all of my sons and daughters, whether they know me yet or not, I'm going to give them good gifts. I'm going to give them good gifts. Even wicked people somehow have good things given to them that I believe are from God. It's not because they earned it, because if, if God can take away something based upon your relationship with him, if he can take that away, then we have no explanation for why people have in the first place. We're, we're, we're ready to take away God's blessing, God's presence. We're ready to take away all good things as soon as we get out of line with our behavior. But we can't ever explain why people have good things from God to begin with. It's because God does not want us to be thinking in performance with his heart. If we think in performance for his gifts, we've completely missed his heart. It is not impossible that you can commit the worst sin of your life. You're driving back from whatever that is and you find a check for a trillion dollars. Like God is not gonna link your failure to his blessings. God is not gonna punish you at all in that. Certainly sin has its own consequences, but, but a gift is only a gift when nothing is expected in return. A gift is a gift when nothing is expected in return. The moment something is expected alongside a gift, it becomes what? Manipulation. 
The moment a gift is tied with an expectation, it becomes manipulation, and God is not a manipulator. He has no expectation in return. He does all this because he has unconditional love for all of his sons and daughters, all of his children. They're all children of God, just they don't know it yet. It's important to know that God is not in it for what he can get, but what he can give. Self-seeking love gives, it does not take. Love gives, lusts takes. Love gives, lust takes. There we go. (laughs) One thing I struggle with in that too is you hear people like describe like, you know, prioritizing their love, right? Well, first I love God and then I love my wife and then I love my, you know, like you, you get, I mean, come on. We've all in our mind like calculated, you know, how's that order doing? If there's a chart that show with like a pie graph, like who I love more, you know, and we struggle with like, is God like, do I love God the most? And finally, like it came to me that it's impossible for me to love my wife without loving her through God because God is love. They, they suddenly weren't in competition with each other. And, and God isn't in competition with love because he is love. When we love somebody, love a daughter, love a sister, love a brother, love a mom, love a dad, love a, a spouse, you actually are, lo- you are experiencing the essence of who God created himself to be revealed as. But think about it this way. When we think about self-seeking people who never risk themselves without a guaranteed return, and you think that God has given himself to billions of people who will never come to know him. He's made himself authentically available to people that are going to willfully ignore him. God is not self-seeking. Number three is God is not affected by your sin. God is not self-seeking because God is not affected by your sin. Someone who is self-seeking is concerned with how they look when someone else messes up. Someone who is self-seeking makes sure that everybody knows who is really responsible when things go wrong. Have you ever been in like a group project for school? And like somebody blows it, and you're like, ah, like, I did my research, they didn't, you know, their dog, you know, like we have this inclination when we're part of like a mess up, we want to like let, you know, we do like this little, you know, hinting. A self-seeking person makes sure that they point out who blew it and who won. A self-seeking person will make sure they are never wronged again. Someone who's self-seeking makes sure they don't make the same mistake twice. Someone who's self-seeking demands to see proof of change and repentance before investing themselves again. Have you ever had to live down a mistake with somebody? And you had to like prove like, I won't do that again. (laughs) Amen. People who are self-seeking keep track of the score and settle the score. Have you ever met somebody who that you had an exchange with and they won't let you live down something that maybe was embarrassing for you or maybe you, you know, made a mistake and, and they, they continually remind you of that? It's frustrating. You're like, dude, come on, grace, give me something else. But sometimes you put that mentality upon God as well. And what we do is we, we, put, we put our sin and our repentance as a barrier for God's love reaching us. Repentance is always in our best interest, not because it releases God's presence, but because sin destroys life and and depletes our joy. 
As a loving father, he wants us to be fulfilled, wants us to have joy, and repentance, turning away, has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do about us. It has everything about us maintaining joy, maintaining righteousness, maintaining how we feel about how we experience God. And when we encounter sin, sin has this way of invading our life and taking over and making us feel with guilt and shame. And God doesn't grieve it because of what it did something to him. He grieves it because of what's happening to us. You know, some, I hear people say all the time that, well, I sinned and so God stopped talking to me. I just like, I don't, I don't, I can't wrap my mind around a God who sees a child struggle. It's like seeing my daughter who, let's say she, I, I tell her don't go to the stove because she's like at the grabbing angel. She's like turning things, you know? And we, no, Scarlett, don't do that, you know? And it'd be the same as if she goes there, turns on the burner, burns her hand, and then I walk out of the room. It'd be just as callous for us to identify punishment from God when we have a mistake. Now, something that does happen with sin, because let's be, let's be honest here, God will never remove his voice at the presence of your sin. But what happens when we sin is that we get other voices in the room. That's what happens. Is that when we sin, we invite all these other competing opinions about ourselves to join the chorus. And it becomes like being in a great room with lots of people like this where it becomes hard for me to hear one person when they're speaking, just they voice and speaking, but you have all these other competing voices to get the attention. And God's not trying to, you know, guilt you into getting your act together. So many Christians are convinced that God will take back his heart if we don't shape up and fly right. And if we could lose our access to God based on our actions, then that would mean that we could gain access to God based on our actions. And we know that's not true. We can't gain access to God by our actions, so why would we lose access to God based on our actions? So many, things, so many times I, I think when people link their sin with falling away with God, it's, it's not because anything changed about God, it's because they believe the lie that God goes silent when sin is present. When in reality, God looks at us as the kids who reach up for the hot stove and he races over and he grabs us and he's right there. One of the most powerful stories, and it drives me nuts too. Can I just rant for one second? It drives me nuts how people want to defend, want to defend a faith and a God that condemns people. If you look at the story of Jesus encountering the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, right? Probably naked, coming in right there, right? Do you realize, if you read the account, he forgave her before she ever repented. God's kindness leads us to repentance. God always moves first in the side of our sin. God always is the first responder. Certainly sin, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to rationalize sin. I'm not trying to ease the consequences of, of sin. I'm not trying to pull the power out of, out of the, the pain of sin. But what I am trying to do is I'm trying to not let it be a source where we run away from God. Because sin causes us to run away from God. That's the second sin of any sin. The first sin is what does it to our flesh. The second sin is how we react to it. Our flesh, our heart, our minds can be defiled, but the greater sin is what we do afterwards. I think it's, it's uh, Proverbs says, a righteous man falls seven times, but gets back up. What makes a man righteous is not that he doesn't fall, it's that he gets back up. The righteousness of the man is defined, but he knows he can get back up. 
But we think that when we sin that we've personally offended God, like as if God needs to have like a reputation maintained. You know, have you ever like wondered like, gosh, Tim Tebow, he played terrible, and now God is like defamed, like, you know, oh, we we're just hoping out that maybe, you know. We like pick our favorite like Jesus figurines and these superstars. Like I had just heard of like this one celebrity that just, you know, came to faith, and I'm like, so? That's cool, you know? But like when, when people fall, when people are in prominent spaces and, and they struggle with their faith and we get so worried like, oh, all the people are gonna run from God. And, and I wonder like there's this burden for us to maintain God's reputation for him. I don't know where it comes from because if God is really concerned about his reputation, he wouldn't have made himself sin for our freedom. He would not have died a criminal's death on a cross to bring us life. God is not self-seeking in that way. Last, God is not pleased by our acknowledgement of unworthiness. God is not self-seeking because he's not pleased by our acknowledgement of unworthiness. A self-seeking person seeks recognition of their accomplishments. A self-seeking person receives pleasure by knowing they are better than others. A self-seeking person measures how they compare to others. A self-seeking person keeps track of rank and order. Do you ever notice like some people will let you know where they stand in comparison to you? You know, hey, I went to Hawaii, I went to Hawaii four times. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're like, all right, cool. Glad for you, you know. I got a car. What year is it? Oh, it's a 2008. Oh, I got a 2009. All right, that's sweet. <laughs> Whatever. A self-seeking person basks in the acknowledgement of their superiority. Like, yep, that's right. Because most Christians believe God is a self-seeking God. They believe that God gets pleasure by us saying how low we are. If there's one consistent thing that I hear out of the mouths of more people who the Bible calls you priests, a royal priesthood, the thing I hear the most from Christians is that I am low, I am unworthy, I am filthy, I am nothing. There's songs, I am nothing. I mean, like we, I sing songs a lot in these messages, right? <laughs> Pick on songs. But it becomes this vernacular, like we come and worship and, and we like, God, I'm nothing. And, and, and there's no part of God's heart that takes pleasure in that. There is no part of God's heart that takes pleasure in you coming before him and saying, I am nothing, I'm worthless. If you read in the Bible every single account, almost every account where God's manifest presence comes before somebody and they, they, they get down like this, I'm, you know, the first thing that he says is get up. He's not like, ooh, this is good. I'm going <laughs> to, come on, yeah. You know, he's not like taking it in. He's like, get up. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrible that we find somewhere that in God's heart that he gets a rise out of us cutting ourselves down. And secondly, this is the thing you need to know about that is that when we say that we're nothing, when we say we're unworthy, when we say that we are, are, are filthy, we are literally telling him that everything his son died for on the cross was for nothing. Whatever you say you are, you can put in the, in the place of that God sent his son for nothing. God sent his son for filth. God sent his son for unworthiness. 
Now we know that we aren't justified by our flesh, so we know that our effort doesn't get us salvation, doesn't bring us closer to God. But when we say we are nothing and that we're not worthy, we are saying that Christ didn't know what he was doing when he died for us. Let me say that again, I don't think you guys got that. When we say that we are nothing, we are saying that Christ did not know what he was dying for when he died for us. It's like saying Jesus was fooled. Why do we ask God to die for worthless, unworthy rubbish? It doesn't make someone feel like that. It's like if someone gives you an amazing car, they like buy you, let's say, a Lamborghini, and then all you do is talk about, oh, it's rubbish. It's, it's such a junker. You know, it's like, <laughs> you're like, really? Because something powerful happened when Jesus went on the cross is that he gave his righteousness to you. When you become saved, when you become God's son and daughter, eternally reconciled to him, you take on the righteousness of Jesus, Philippians 3.9. And in every instance where man encounters God in the manifest glory, he bows down and God says, get up. And Jesus said a very powerful thing in John 15.15. He says, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. God is not looking for slaves or servants. He's looking for sons. He's looking for daughters. He's looking for family. You know, like we expect God to be a king, you know, where someone like brings him like a dinner and like, you know, does like this outside. It's like <laughs> we treat God with like this this crazy glory and reverence and awe. And, and I, I said this a few weeks ago that Jesus came as a lowly carpenter because he knew that glory can kill intimacy. He knew that we could become so caught up in the awe and the magnitude that we just would like glory and whoa, that's bright, you know, and you just like, you get overwhelmed by glory. And, and he's like, glory is there, but it, it, it shouldn't kill intimacy. I'm gonna call the band up here. And I feel it's necessary to, to mention this again, but there's a burden within Christians that a job well done, like a pat on the back, a good job, Billy, you know, it gets religiously deflected to God, right? So like, like you want to make somebody uncomfortable, especially in this audience, is just after service, go up and just start complimenting them. You want to make someone feel so uncomfortable, just compliment somebody after service. Be like, I love that shirt. Like, I was talking about your voice, too. I mean, like, you, you handle like a champ, but um, like, you just start like going over the top about them, like in a genuine way. And they'll just like, you know, it's like, oh, it's a like kryptonite. I can't handle this. And then they'll, they'll start like, oh, it's all God. It's all God. You know, and like, you just like, you want to get it off of you. And, and, and there, there's something about when we say, well, I give all glory to God, when we do that, I don't think God gets any of that glory, do you? Because what we're saying in that is like, well, it's all God. Well, I heard one person say, well, it wasn't that good. You know, it's, there, there's like, you know, some room in there. But, but when we do that, what we are saying, <laughs> what we're saying when we're like, no, it, it, God gets all the glory, what we're saying is that God is paranoid that somebody else besides him is gonna get glory. Someone besides him is gonna get praise is what you're really saying. There's something that, about the Father's heart that loves to see his children shine. There's not an ounce about me that ever wants Scarlett to feel lowly or unworthy or dirty. I want her to feel like she shines. 
Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men. We don't go rub anybody's nose in anything, like any of that stuff. I'm not, don't misunderstand me there. But there's something about us not, when we are a royal priesthood and we can't be able to recognize the great things God did in our lives, the great gifts he's given us, not because we did anything to earn them, but because he's just a good God. We are partnering with distorting God's heart that says God is so self-seeking that he's like so self-interested that he is so paranoid that anything would ever be not about him. I think uh, out of like all the ones we go through, understand that God is not selfish. He's not going to control you. He's not insecure about who you love. Do you love him more than I do? Like when we, when we get freed up for that, suddenly I think that we can actually come and have genuine relationship with God. We, when we don't feel like the game is rigged. Because some of us, we, we play religion really well. And, and we, we've, in this whole mentality of self-seeking love that it's all about one person, we think that God has just this one way relationship with God. When we say we're in love with God, we, we really are thinking about how all the things we do to send upward. For us, we're like, yeah, I'm in a loving relationship with God. Let me ask you something. Take out the cross, take out your sin. How does God love you? It's a relationship, right? What are the ways in which you feel God loves you? Surely just wasn't, I mean, Surely we have to expect a relationship with God as something more than something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's like me giving someone like a really good gift, that Lamborghini again, right? And I remind you for 2,000 years about how much I love you based on that gift long ago. It kind of gets old. You're like, I get it. Thank you. I sent the note already. But there's something that's absent, I think, from our relationships with God. I'm not, I'm just using generalities. But I think there's something that we only identify God's loving relationship back to us by what happened 2,000 years ago, and we completely turn ourselves off that God would actually be manifesting love to us in the here and now. God has given so many resources. He's given us his spirit. It says we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, 16. It says, come reason with me. He asks us to engage with him, Isaiah 1, 18. We have such this amazing availability to God's presence and God's spirit and the things that we believe about his heart like tonight are things that will keep us away from there.